Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we're going to talk about one of those people who has been requested so many times. Yes. We, we cannot say all the people <laughs> who have requested <laughs> that her. That almost be its own podcast. Yes. And that person is Jane Addams. And she's one of those people who accomplished so much during her lifetime and was so beloved for most of it that it's really hard to sum her up in just a couple of sentences like we often try to do at the beginning of our podcasts. She was one of the foremost women in America's progressive era, which is when thinkers and activists were really working to address all these problems that had been brought on by urbanization and industrialization. So progressives were working to combat violence, poverty, greed, class warfare, racism, and a lot of other social issues. And Jane Addams made meaningful contributions to all of these. Yeah, her accomplishments were really prolific. Uh, one of the big ones is that she co-founded Hull House, which was America's most well-known and influential social settlement. She also wrote 11 books and, and numerous articles, and she was a frequent speaker on issues relating to women, children, immigrants, and the poor. She founded or helped found social organizations that still exist today, including the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, otherwise known as the NAACP, and the American Civil Liberties Union. So when you hear people talk about the ACLU, Jane Addams had a big hand in its founding. And she was also an officer or board member on many, many other organizations. Uh, and she was the first American woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. So, it, yeah, as Tracy said, not one that's easy to sum up in a sentence or two. So her popularity was not completely universal, though. By World War One, she was just as likely to be called, in the words of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, the most dangerous woman in America. We'll talk more about that in the second part of this two-parter, but today we will look at Hull House and the social settlement movement in America. So we'll start at the beginning, uh, which is where she was born. Uh, she was originally born Laura Jane Adams in Cedarville, Illinois, and that was on September 6th of 1860. Uh, Cedarville was a very small farming community in the northwestern part of Illinois, not far uh, south from the Wisconsin state line. Her parents were John Huey Adams and Sarah Weber. Her father was a well-off industrialist. He owned a grain mill and had interest in a bank, as well as a number of other investments. And he was a state senator for 16 years. Sarah died when Jane was two, and John remarried, uh, this time to a widow named Anna Haldeman in 1868. So they were really an educated, affluent family. And Jane was born with a spinal defect, which was corrected through surgery when she was quite young. But her health throughout her life was often poor. She didn't really uh, enjoy robust good health. She started college at Rockford Female Seminary in 1877. She served as class president for all her four of her years there. And she edited the school magazine and served as president of the Literary Society. She graduated in 1881. Uh, and, you know, just for reference, it was pretty uncommon for the time period, even among affluent women, to have achieved that. She was also the valedictorian. And in 1882, when the school's program became accredited and it became known as Rockford College for Women, she became the first person to receive its baccalaureate degree. 
And today, Rockford College for Women is Rockford University. And Jane had been raised in a Christian household, and her family had instilled in her a deep sense of Christian values, along with uh, the sense of importance of community involvement in the arts. And after graduation, she wanted to find a secular way to put all of those ideals into practice, rather than becoming a teacher or a missionary. And at the time, those were really the only two socially acceptable options for an educated woman in terms of uh, life work at this point in American history. Her only other option really would have been to return home and care for family. So as you might imagine, for someone who had gone to college and done so very well to have such limited options, this was a really frustrating time in her life. And she spent the next few years trying to figure out what her path would be. So she dabbled a little bit in travel and medical study. She actually had to abandon her medical study because of her health. She also read extensively and sadly was in and out of the hospital during this time. This was a a period of years of of soul searching and trying to figure out what she could do that would be acceptable for her to do. That would also fulfill her. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, while traveling in London, it came to her. All of these ideas and these thoughts and, and desires she had coalesced into a decision to start a social settlement. So let's talk about social settlements for a minute. Yes, indeed. They got their start in England in the 1880s. The first was Toynbee Hall, which was in East London, and that actually still exists today. And the idea behind them is that uh, educated middle class people who were quite affluent compared to the people in the neighborhoods surrounding these settlements would move to a more urban, lower income area. And in doing so, they would also provide help and service to the people living there. The residents of the settlement would stay there anywhere from, say, a year to their uh, entire lives. And they were generally motivated by a desire to contribute to the community and to try to bridge the gap between the different classes. Some of the residents had jobs somewhere else in the city, and most of them volunteered their time toward the services that the settlement was providing to the neighborhood. So the settlement would provide all kinds of support and aid to the surrounding community, like classes and child care and employment help and libraries. They also often provided a place for local groups and clubs to meet. So it was a very community building endeavor. And it's important to note that it wasn't so much about charity, even though some settlement houses did provide things like meals and clothing and shelter. The focus was really more um, intellectual and social, usually. So the houses tried to address the social and cultural and intellectual needs of the community. So while other organizations were more about people's physical poverty, Hull House and most other social settlements were really about addressing spiritual and intellectual poverty. So it was really improvement of a different kind. Yeah. So the overall approach within the settlement movement was not, hey, let's us rich, smart white people go move somewhere and fix all the poor immigrants. Like there were definitely people who joined the movement, individual people who had this attitude. But really, the focus was all about cooperation and community. It was about offering support and services while also learning from the people in the neighborhood. So it was meant to be beneficial for everyone who was involved in it and not sort of this giant effort of of rich people to go and fix up the poor people. Right. Uh, writing for Nonprofit Quarterly, Rick Owen explains that Hull House, quote, aimed to change the conditions of poor immigrant communities and the mindsets of both the poor 
and the privileged. So while some social settlements were religiously affiliated, Hull House was secular. And there were actually more than 100 such houses in the United States by uh, 1900, and more than 400 by the time World War I started. They declined a little bit after the First World War and the Great Depression. Uh, and while there are still active settlement houses today, uh, community centers and other philanthropic organizations are really much more common. Along with Ellen Gates Starr, Jane founded Hull House in Chicago's near West Side in 1899. This was a really poor and rough neighborhood. Hull House was the second settlement house in the United States, and it became one of the most influential, if not the most influential in the world. Ellen Starr actually lived there for nearly 30 years, and she was particularly active in Hull House's art programs. Jane lived there as well, although travel and her health took her to many other places as well, particularly in her later years. Later on, she also stayed with Mary Rosette Smith, who was a Hull House donor and volunteer. Most biographies describe Mary and Jane as companions or romantic friends, uh, or describe their relationship as a Boston marriage, which was sort of a word for two women that owned a home together without men there. And Ellen and Jane had visited Toynbee Hall while they were on a trip to London, and they decided to follow a similar model for their settlement in Chicago. Uh, her goal was, in Jane's words, quote, to provide a center for a higher civic and social life, to institute and maintain educational and philanthropic enterprises, and to investigate and improve the conditions in the industrial districts of Chicago. They started by renting an abandoned mansion that had been built by Charles G. Hull in 1856. Although, when their landlord, Helen Culver, learned what they were up to there, she stopped collecting the rent and eventually just gave the building to them. That endeavor was largely self-funded through Jane's own inheritance. Her father had passed away in 1881 and left her some money. And then later it was funded through donations and then much later through government funding. And it was staffed by volunteers. Usually the people living in a settlement house were natives of the country where the settlement house was located. And then often the surrounding community had a really heavily immigrant population. When it was founded, Hull House's neighborhood was densely populated and really low income. And it was largely made up of impoverished immigrants from various European nations, including Italy and Greece. Later on in the 20s, African-Americans and Mexicans also started to move into the neighborhood. One of Hull House's first programs was actually a kindergarten. Uh, and that was followed by a daycare for infants and young children, and then clubs for older children, and then classes and lectures for adults. So they almost sort of started early and then grew it uh, into older age, or not older age, but aged up programs. Yeah, its scope kept getting broader and broader as they went along. Yeah, and the classes eventually included college-level courses, and there was a really big focus on civics and civic duty. Within two years, Hull House was seeing 2,000 people a week. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. Coming through a community house. Well, especially considering that there were never more than, say, 20 people living there as residents to do all this work at a given time. That's a lot of work. Uh, but Hull House continued to grow. Eventually, it comprised 13 different buildings, and it took up half a city block. And its first additional building was actually an art gallery. And it also came to house, among other things, a library, an art studio, a music school, and an employment bureau. 
Hull House also created the first public playground, gymnasium, and swimming pool in Chicago. Hull House started out as really a social and intellectual resource for the impoverished immigrant and African-American population of Chicago. But it grew into an advocacy and lobbying organization fighting for labor reform, social reform, and a variety of other progressive causes, including legal protections for women, children, and the poor, and other really disadvantaged persons and groups. So rattling off all of the specific legislation that Hull House was part of would make this into a long list podcast. It would just be like bills and dates. Uh, but to sum it up, Hull House was really about protecting people and improving quality of life. And that could reach into sanitation, working conditions, health care, or even legal protections for at-risk populations. For example, Hull House actually helped to create the first juvenile court in the U.S. And their efforts contributed to legal protections for women and children in Illinois in 1893, as well as the establishment of the Federal Children's Bureau in 1912, and then also the passage of a federal child labor law in 1916. Those are all pretty huge accomplishments. Yeah, especially given how little, there was just not a a lot of legislation in place at that time, like a lot of the really scary working conditions uh, stories that you hear about in history come from before that era when there was really not any kind of accountability in place at all for the way businesses uh, approached the health and safety of their workers. So Hull House attracted a lot of really notable residents and volunteers, and a lot of them moved on into other progressive era advocacy work of their own. It became kind of an incubator for other progressive reformers, uh, especially women, And so we're going to kind of tick through some of the really notable examples and a couple of notes of their accomplishments. Florence Kelly moved to New York's Henry Street settlement and helped found the Children's Bureau of the Federal Department of Labor. Julia Lathrop was the first head of the Children's Bureau and the first woman to head a federal agency. She helped get federal funding for health care programs for infants and mothers under the Shepherd Towner Maternity and Infancy Act. Alice Hamilton worked extensively on the issue of lead poisoning, which led to improved safety standards. She also became an investigator for the U.S. Bureau of Labor and was the first woman to be on the faculty at Harvard. Sophia Nisba Breckenridge, who was the first woman to get a Ph.D. in political science from the University of Chicago and the first woman to graduate from its law school, helped found the Chicago Women's Trade Union League and the the Chicago chapter of the NAACP. She also wrote really prolifically about social work. Grace and Edith Abbott were sisters that were involved, and Grace was the first director of the Immigrants Protective League and actually held that position for nine years. Edith served as president of the National Conference of Social Work and the American Association of Schools of Social Work. So as a family, they really achieved a great deal. Right. Well, and the the whole of Hull House, it, it, it continued to operate in this way for several more years. And, and it sort of can be summed up as simultaneously providing actual assistance and resources to this community of impoverished people and trying to work for the greater good of other threatened populations through the rest of the United States. Um And that continued to be the case for many, many years. Hull House actually existed until 2012. Uh, Its mission and its structure changed pretty significantly between the 20s, which was the peak of the settlement movement, uh, and 
the year before when we were recording this when it closed. And Jane Addams actually died of cancer in 1935. She had been ill for quite some time, so she had gradually given up various aspects of her work in leading Hull House uh, and handed them over to other people. Because she had been so devoted to the house and to other progressive causes that it came to exemplify, she left really enormous shoes to fill. And during her life, Jane had been head resident and she was in control over the board. And after her death, these duties fell to two different people. Adina Miller-Rich became head resident and Louise DeCoven Bowen became head of the board of trustees. These two disagreed frequently and very passionately until Adina finally resigned. The head residents who came after her seemed less dedicated to Jane's ideas of social progress and more about seeing to the needs of the immediate community. Yeah, but it gradually became less of an advocacy organization and more of a practical... The focus shifted a little closer to home. Right. Yeah. Uh, in all of its operations, Hull House gradually became more like a typical nonprofit that you would see today. It moved from an almost entirely volunteer staff to one that was largely paid and supplemented with volunteers. In 1961, the Hull House buildings were to be demolished for University of Illinois campus, resulting in protests. Two years later, the trustees of Hull House made plans to decentralize its services. The original Hull Mansion and Dining Hall actually became museums, but the rest of the buildings were finally demolished to make way for the university. At this point, Hull House became the Hull House Association, with its programs and its resources spread out to different community and neighborhood centers around Chicago. This decentralization was really also a massive shift in how Hull House worked and how it needed to manage its money, which was operationally hard to manage, and it didn't do it entirely successfully. By 1969, it had an operational deficit of $2 million. The various sites actually wound up competing with one another for support. And by 1985, uh, it was operating from 29 different sites around Chicago, many of which were drawing from the same basic pool of donation resources. So it was tight. It was kind of a zero-sum game. Yeah, they weren't helping themselves at all. In 1990, in an attempt to close this gap and make sure it would just be able to continue to operate... Hull House scaled its focus way back, started working primarily on foster care, and it dropped a lot of the programs that were related to employment and culture and the other services that had been part of its original mission. And then in 2009, it really started aggressively cutting costs, including the employee pension plan. Uh, It also loosened restrictions on its endowment so that the organization could use some of that money towards other purposes. But on January 19th, 2012, the leadership of Hull House announced that it was closing and declaring bankruptcy following a decline in government funding. In spite of efforts to bring in more private donors, it was, by that point, getting as much as 85% of its funds from the government. So this was a complete shift from when it was founded and was entirely funded uh, by Jane Addams' uh, inheritance and the, the work of donors. Hull House tried to raise enough money from donors to stay open, but it just wasn't able to do it. A week after the announcement, Hull House ceased operations and laid off its entire staff of 300 people. And that put an end to 123 years of operation. 
And, of course, there was a lot of speculation about what Jane would have thought about Hull House closing. And opinions on that front are kind of divided, but there's a general consensus that given her history of advocating for labor rights, she would have been organizing the the employees who lost their job, who really were given almost no notice and didn't get any kind of severance in protest. There's now a Jane Addams Hull House Museum, which is built on the original Hull House site in the Hull Home and the Residence Dining Hall. They have a really impressive website that includes all kinds of stuff about the museum and about her and about Hull House and all of that. Very cool. There are also still settlement houses today, although many of them are non-residential. They sort of have the name, but but not the they don't function the yeah. same way. Yeah, not not the part where a person was actually relocating to a community that was in need. At least in the United States, community and neighborhood centers have become a lot more common way of getting those same sorts of resources into a community. So that is uh, Jane Addams' whole house years, right? And that element of her life. In the next episode, we will talk about all of that other stuff that Jane Addams did because there was really a lot of it. This is one of those situations where we feel like we could have recorded. Eight different episodes. <laughs> yeah. Like a really long series on Jane Addams. If ever there were a historical figure that will make you feel lazy, it's Jane Addams. <laughs> so we will move to that next. Yes. I also have some listener mail. Ooh, please share. So this is from Bill, and Bill says, hello, Tracy and Holly. He talks about how he's been listening for more than a year, uh, and he talks about several of our episodes. So he says, first of all, I just listened to the ice cream podcast. While you did talk about the rise of ice cream as a popular American food, you seemed a little uncertain as to why it has become such an American phenomenon in the last century or two. I was initially puzzled by this as I was listening to the podcast while driving through rural northern Japan and I passed several ice cream shops and farms advertising homemade ice cream along the way. I know. Just thinking about that makes me glad that lunch is not too far away. Yes. He goes on to say, but as I thought about it, an an explanation came to me. Milk prices. I live in Hokkaido, which is basically Japan's dairy land. Even so, milk costs about 200 yen a liter, which is about $7.50 a gallon here. My sister, who lives in a similarly rural town in Ohio, says that it is about two and a half times what they pay for milk at the grocery store. Other dairy products like butter and cheese are similarly expensive here, even though they're made locally and shipped to the rest of Japan. America has a huge dairy industry, leading to lower prices on all dairy products, ice cream included. In the case of countries like Japan and China, they don't have as extensive of a dairy tradition, while most countries with longer ice cream traditions don't have the space for cattle farming necessary to bring prices so low. So basically, Bill is theorizing that the reason uh, the reason ice cream is such an American pastime for eating milk is cheaper because we have so much milk. That makes so much sense. It does. I hadn't thought about it from the economic versus sort of just general cultural aspect, but that makes complete sense. Well, and we also got a note from another listener who talked about how we didn't really go into the idea of the soda fountain Mm -hmm. as sort of a place to hang out in community. Yeah. Um, which I think we might have touched on tangentially, but that like Very that also, yeah, that also played a role in the world of ice cream. Uh, so Bill goes on to say, my year-old comment is related to the ten historical hoaxes episode recorded by your predecessors. 
One of those hoaxes was the Newark Holy Stones, which, regardless of their status as a hoax, are an interesting historical tale in and of themselves. When they finished that story on the podcast, they mentioned that the stones were currently located in the Johnson Hummerkaus Museum in Ohio. I was so disappointed that they left out the city that the museum is in, my hometown, Coshocton. It's a very small city, barely qualifying for the title based on its population, just over the 10,000 mark, and is actually quite rural considering that the nearest larger city is a 45-minute drive away, and the nearest city you've probably heard of is 90 minutes away. All that considered, I would have been overjoyed to hear my humble little hometown mentioned in a podcast I listened to. I had planned to write in, but kept putting it off. Well, now it has. I know. Fast forward (laughs) a year or so to your podcast about Johnny Appleseed. In your reply to one of the listener mails you read, you mentioned a book on the history of Coshocton County with an impressively long title as one of your major sources for the podcast. Finally, my little corner of nowhere got its brief moment in the sun. Thank you so much for that, and it's really a strange feeling to hear my hometown mentioned by anybody who wasn't born there. Kind of goes on to talk about some podcast suggestions, which we will save in case we want to surprise people with them later. Yeah. Uh, And then says, thanks for making my daily commute interesting and educational. So thank you so much, Bill. Yeah. Lots of interesting insights and thoughts. I love it. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of... uh, I, I like I like how people find such comfort in hearing their place. Yeah, it's a little connection. Yeah, mentioned it. somewhere. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, you can at historypodcast@discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com/historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we've been pinning away on Pinterest. If you want to learn a little more about some of what we've talked about today, you can go to our website and search for the word philanthropy, and you will find how philanthropy works. You can learn about that and so much more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.